I feel like I've learned that poetry is much more simple and much more complex. The real pressure is learning how to write complex things in simple terms. I wish as a poetry teacher that I could give you the recipe. I wish I could say, here's what you need to do. Follow these 12 steps and you'll write a great poem, but there is no such recipe. It's really hard to write a poem. It's mysterious. I don't know how these things get written. I don't know how to do it. I have done it from time to time, but it's just trial and error and I get lucky. I, after reading this book, I'm really excited about the idea that I can write a poem about anything. And she does such a good job of showing that anything can be interesting. Anything can be looked at differently. Anything can be worth writing about and worth reading and, and be insightful. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Torin and Brooklyn about more poems by Wisława Zimborska. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you learn how to fight against emotion in your poems. But first, the quote of the day. Here are a couple of quotes that come from an interview that Zimborska gave once. She said, Obviously, at the very core of every poem, there is emotion. What you have to do is fight against this emotion. If you were to use emotions only, it would be enough to say, I love you, full stop. Don't leave me. What shall I do without you? Oh, my poor country. Oh, my poor homeland. I like this a lot because it's, it's slightly counterintuitive. We, we might come to the genre of poetry expecting it to be a place of naked and unrestrained emotion. But actually, here is one of poetry's best practitioners telling us that we have to actually tamp down or restrain or fight against this emotion. We have to say things that matter in ways that are surprising and counterintuitive. It's not enough to just simply say, I love you. This is when the Dickinson quote comes to mind, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Later in this interview, Zimborska said, in every possible answer, there should be another question. I like this a lot. It especially characterizes her own poems, something Claire and I chatted about in the last podcast. Her poems have this remarkable ability to constantly push a thought farther and farther and farther. And for more of the ways in which her own poems do this, and for many more wonderful aspects of her poetry, let's go into that chat with me and Torin and Brooklyn. How are you guys? Good, how are you? I thought I would kick it off by reading this poem about Hitler. It's a very strange poem. And then, yeah, we can just take turns. I hope that you guys brought a poem or two, or maybe three as backup that you guys really want to talk about. Um, and we'll just kind of take turns. Uh, it's 254. I have the other one, so. If you have the other one, what page is it on? The Hitler one is 196. 196 or 254, depending on which book you have. Hitler's first photograph. And who's this little fellow in his itty-bitty robe? That's tiny baby Adolf, the Hitler's little boy. Will he grow up to be an LLD or a tenor in Vienna's opera house? Whose teensy hand is this? Whose little ear and eye and nose? Whose tummy full of milk? We just don't know. Printers, doctors, merchants, priests? Where will those tootsie wootsies finally wander? To a garden, to a school, to an office, to a bride? Maybe to the Burgermeister's daughter? Precious little angel, mommy's sunshine, honey bun, 
While he was being born a year ago, there was no dearth of signs on the earth and in the sky. Spring sun, geraniums in windows, the organ grinder's music in the yard, a lucky fortune wrapped in rosy paper. Then, just before the labor, his mother's fateful dream, a dove seen in a dream means joyful news. If it is caught, a long-awaited guest will come. Knock, knock, who's there? It's Adolf's Herzchen knocking. I think the shin is just a German diminutive, like his cute little heart is knocking inside his mother's womb, yeah? Okay, I'll keep reading. A little pacifier, diaper, rattle, bib. Our bouncing boy, thank God, and knock on wood is well. Looks just like his folks, like a kitten in a basket, like the tots in every other family album. Shh, let's not start crying, sugar. The camera will click from under that black hood. The Klinger Atelier, Grabenstrasse, Branau, and Branau is a small but worthy town. Honest businesses, obliging neighbors, smell of yeast dough, of gray soap. No one hears howling dogs or fate's footsteps. A history teacher loosens his collar and yawns over homework. The first thing I want to say about this poem is how... We talked about this briefly in class, and maybe my wife and I alluded to it in the previous podcast, but she has such an amazing talent for showing us familiar things from a perspective that is so utterly surprising. You know, Hitler, you know, maybe the most talked about figure of the 20th century. We've never quite seen him from this angle before, you know, ever. So this is a great little lesson that she's teaching us about poetry. You don't have to find familiar subjects. You don't have to find familiar topics, but maybe it's enough. Maybe it's more than enough to show us a familiar topic from a perspective, from an angle that is totally unfamiliar. So look at it from the side, look at it from the bottom. Yeah, Hitler's the dictator, the mass murderer, but what about, you know, as a newborn? What is the effect on you as readers of all of this baby talk? It feels so tragic to me. Babies have all this potential, you know, and all babies are just, you know, so innocent, so sweet. And I imagine any person, even just like holding like the little baby Adolf would think like, oh, like what a darling little baby. Yeah. Like, and, and give him all this baby talk and just, you know, love on him. It's just it's just really sad that his his life did turn out the way it did. And, you know, he he caused so many people an excruciating amount of pain and you know but there was one time where he was just a little baby and i'm sure like everyone just you know loved him like any other baby it's so sad i think that's the best word for it it's tragic i think the baby talk helps strangely heighten this tragedy that's another thing that zimborska is so good at she'll use an ironic tone but in a way that makes us not laugh but feel sad I'd say she she did a great job of setting a tone where you, you know, if you didn't know, if you didn't read the title of the poem that says it's about Hitler, you'd be like, oh, this cute little baby. I wonder what he'll grow up to be. And it's it's just so interesting to think about how any little child has opportunity to become anything. And I loved the detail, especially, too, about the history teacher yawning over homework. So just good. The thought, yeah, like the, the world is frozen in this moment of time, almost like in this ordinary kind of dull reality. And and at some point, something will change. You know, there will be these catas- catastrophic wars. 
started by this little baby, this little uh-huh. child, but you can't know that. You could never stop that moment. There's no no way any of these people who looked at this tiny, cute child would have known, oh, we need to kill the child now. Right. We can't let yeah. the child grow up. You, there's no way to know that. And it That's just right. brings out that frustrating, reminds me of sci-fi movies. They go back in time and you're like, oh, if I had known, like, exactly. you know, they try to change the fate, but you can't do that in this world. Okay, you said you said a couple of things I want to highlight there. Zimborska. So if we're making a list, I wish I could take notes for everybody, but we're adding to a mental list here some other items. So the first thing we've said is show familiar objects or people or events from perspectives that we haven't seen before. You don't have to go seek out new topics. Just kind of move the camera, move the position of the camera and show us these things from new angles. The second is, yeah, you can use irony for tragic effect. The third is... Um, Maybe the best way, I'm not going to say the only way, certainly a very good way to talk about grand ideas or concepts. I mean, her poems often get called philosophical. And like you allude to, Brooklyn, there are all these questions about the time machine. Like, would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler, you know? Or fate or free will. How do children turn out the way they do? Or questions of nature versus nurture, you know? Questions about agency, why does history go one way and not another? These are all quite large philosophical questions. And maybe her poems would be less impactful if she didn't ground them in specifics and concretes. So she's looking at one photograph of one baby and just describing it and imagining the thoughts of the mother and imagining this town. So you can, it's slightly a paradox, but maybe the best way to evoke universals in a poem, because you do want your poems to be about everyone, but maybe the best way to do it is, is make it about one person. I like, too, what you say about the history teacher. It's so almost boringly plain. And even Brunau, you know, this town that they're in. It's a small town. The smell of yeast dough, of gray soap. You know, even the colors are gray. So what is remarkable about this town? They make gray soap there. (laughs) I think the last two lines of this poem are a great example of the power of showing and not telling. You often hear this in creative writing classes, show, don't tell. A history teacher loosens his collar and yawns over homework. What does that image tell us? So it shows us something, but what does that image tell us exactly? Oh, for me, it's just like, how could a history teacher, this history teacher, you know, obviously he's passionate about it if that's what he's teaching, but how could he know that someone who's going to impact the rest of history for forever is just, you know, a little baby right now? In his own town, yeah. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. there's this peaceful, sleepy, like, oh, isn't history boring now? It's so ironic because little does he know, you know? Little does he know. That is such a good point. And clearly shows there's nothing more important for him to be worrying about than Mm -hmm. homework in this moment. But I love that detail about the history because history is about to change. It's about to change violently. Who wants to nominate another poem? There's one that I think is kind of entertaining, kind of interesting, Funeral. And that's page 206 in the non-map book. In the non-map book. The other book is just called, what is it called? It's just called like Collected it's called Poems or poems something. Poems New and Collected, yeah. Poems New and Collected. Yeah. So we're looking at the poem Funeral. Uh, I think she has two poems called Funeral. So this is the latter one, the funeral second one. Funeral 2. Yeah, Funeral 2. So page yeah. 264. Okay. Funeral. So suddenly, who could have seen it coming? Stress and smoking, I kept telling him. Not bad, thanks, and you. These flowers need to be unwrapped. His brother's heart gave out, too. It runs in the family. 
I never know you in that beard. He was asking for it, always mixed up in something. That new guy was going to make a speech. I don't see him. Kazakhs in Warsaw. Tadek has gone abroad. Oh, you were smart. You brought the only umbrella. So what if he was more talented than they were? No, it's a walk-through room. Barbara won't take it. Of course he was right, but that's no excuse. With bodywork and paint, just guess how much. Two egg yolks and a tablespoon of sugar. None of his business what was in it for him. Only in blue and just small sizes. Five times and never any answer. All right, so I could have, but you could have too. Good thing at least she still had a job. Don't know. Relatives, I guess. That priest looks just like Belmondo. I've never been in this part of the grounds. I dreamed about him last week. I had a feeling. His daughter's not so bad looking. The way of all flesh. Give my best to the widow. I've got to run. It all sounded so much more solemn in Latin. What's gone is gone. Goodbye. I could sure use a drink. Give me a call. Which bus goes downtown? I'm going this way. We're not. Great job. Yeah, you did a great job reading that. And what is it about this poem that stood out to you? I thought it was so brilliant because it's just a collection of quotations that you would hear people say at a funeral. And I love how it it brings together all the different emotions that different mm. people would be experiencing in this setting. You know, some people are very concerned about the way that the death occurred or they're concerned about the will and what was left behind or about the kind of person that they were. Some people are just there because their family's there or they're just there to socialize. This is one of one of the main times that people gather when they wouldn't otherwise. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're saying, oh, like, how are you doing? And how's your family? And here's my family's update. And, you know, the young teenage boy's only there to scout out girls, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and then they're distracted by the little details. And then, you know, they leave. And the end of the poem doesn't, it doesn't give a tone of sorrow or mourning for the lost person. It's more like, the end of the tone of a funeral where you've been sad, you've thought about the person and then you socialize and then you leave and then you move on. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of poetry that's about mourning, a lot of elegies. They're so sad. Mm-hmm. And this is such a non-elegy death poem. I thought that was fascinating. It, it very much gives me the feeling of just sitting in the pews at a funeral, mm-hmm. just hearing people around me. I want to quickly highlight three things. First, again, she is she is showing us a thing that is quite common from a totally new angle. So it's not the normal funeral poem, as you just said, Brooklyn. It's not the normal elegy. It's let's describe a funeral not as a solemn thing, not from one perspective, but as a kind of fragmented, multi-perspected, multi-tonal chorus. She's showing us a familiar thing from a new angle or from many different angles. Mixed emotions too. So poems don't have to be only sad or only happy. This has all of the emotions. They're just like real life, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, poems can just be made out of scraps and fragments. Just what you overhear. You know, it doesn't you don't have to be <clears throat> as wise as Shakespeare. Doesn't have to you don't have to paint the most beautiful portrait. If you just have a good ear, if you just pay attention and listen, you know, that's all you need to do to make a great poem. Torin, I know you didn't pick this poem, but do you have anything to add? What would you say? So I think the first time I read this poem, I was, I guess I felt kind of frustrated at these people. And, you know, maybe that's the feeling that she was hoping for. It seems like a lot of her poems 
Um, she expresses like the mortality of humanity, mm. and yet how were you so easily forget? People die all the time, and then we just we just move on. Right. But yeah, like this this poem, it was really frustrating. But I guess like hearing the two of you talk about it, I feel a little less frustrated at these you know fictional people. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to experience death. It doesn't hurt this person. You know, he's dead. Right. And I think exploring all the different ways that these people are trying to understand it is beautiful. Yeah. Now that I see it from a different perspective. There's something beautiful in its honesty. This is how humans behave at a funeral. You know, let's just be honest about it. This is how they behave. They're partly distracted, partly selfish. And if I think if she told us other things, we would know that she's kind of lying and we wouldn't like it as much. Okay, uh, Torin, what poem would you like to go to? I have the same book as Brooklyn and it's on 204. It's Plotting with the Dead. Plotting with the Dead. In map, it's 262. Plotting with the Dead. Under what conditions do you dream of the dead? Do you often think of them before you fall asleep? Who appears first? Is it always the same one? First name, surname, cemetery, date deceased. To what do they refer? Old friendship, kinship, fatherland? Do they say where they come from? And who's behind them? And who besides you sees them in his dreams? Their faces, are they like their photographs? Have they aged at all with time? Are they robust? Are they wan? The murdered ones, have their wounds healed yet? Do they still remember who killed them? What do they hold in their hands? Describe those objects. Are they charred, moldy, rusty, decomposed? And in their eyes, what? Entreaty? A threat? Be specific. Do you only chat about the weather? Or about flowers, birds, butterflies? No awkward questions on their part? If so, what do you reply? Instead of safely keeping quiet? Or evasively changing the dream subject? Or waking up just in time? Yeah, Uh, what, what, what do you love about this? I love that almost every line is a question, Mm. except for the command, like, describe those objects. I love that, you know, she's telling you, like, describe those objects, because I don't don't know about you guys, but, you know, people I know and love who've passed away, I can definitely relate to this poem, you know? And maybe I have or haven't, like, seen them in my dreams, but I feel like I can ask these questions of myself, Mm. and if not, even if it's not true, the way I answer these questions, I don't think it's wrong to ask them of myself and try and answer them. Like I've never wondered, like, who else sees them in their dreams? What are they holding? Have they aged? Mm. I think I think that's just incredible to like think about these questions because I know sometimes when I think about those people I love who've passed away, it's just you know, well they're dead. It's tragic and it's sad and it's a horrible way they died rather than consider what they would be like if I saw them in my dreams like I think that's just so so creative and so such a beautiful thought kind of makes them kind of makes these deceased people live on excellent a couple things there worth underscoring I don't want to just repeat what you said but I want to highlight it yeah this goes back to curiosity like she's such a curious person she never insists well she rarely insists that she has answers quote-unquote answers You know, it's always, I don't know, I don't know. So the poem is mostly questions. Where are they? What do they look like? How do, what do they hold in their hands? Describe those objects. It's almost a kind of um, lesson in writing poetry. Describe these objects. 
Are they charred, moldy, rusty, decomposed? And in their eyes, what? Entreaty? A threat? Be specific, right? Be specific. Mm -hmm. So if you want to write a great poem about a person that you love, don't say, oh, they were kind, or don't make it this weird, vague, abstract thing. Don't just try to use general language that evokes a kind of atmosphere or mood. No, 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 no. What are they holding? What do their hands look like? Be specific. My mom's passed away. I remember... For some reason, after she passed away, one of the things I remembered most about her was that she had this scar on her hand. She got scratched by this cat. So she had this big scar on her hand by her thumb. And it was a detail about her that I always remembered, you know, uh, and it just stood out to me in my memory way more than it did in life. I think Zimborska is wise enough to know that when we think about those people that we've lost, it's not as vague, atmospheric things. It's concrete, literal mundane, specific things that we miss the most and that will make the poems about them so much better. I actually looked at the poem a little differently. Um, yeah, go for my it. My perspective was kind of maybe from a, a war veteran or from a murderer, a person who has killed other people. Mm. And, you know, with their PTSD in their dreams, I'm sure they dream about these people that they've seen and the horrors that they've seen. And, um, you know, in the moment of, of the killing, they were not focused on who these people are, but later I'm mm. sure they would, you know, they would think about, well, who was this person? What did they do? Who did they love? Where were they from? Would I have been friends with them if I right. had known them in a different circumstance? Like, I think those people would haunt their memories and their dreams because they didn't know these things about them. And suddenly what is what is the most haunting, I, I don't want to sound like I'm just repeating myself, but what is the most haunting about them are the small, mundane, physical attributes. Mm -hmm. Because those are the things that make them individuals. They're not generic humans anymore. They're specific people holding specific objects. Okay, can we do the uh, cat in an empty apartment? In map, it's page 296, and in poems new and collected, 238. Okay. Cat in an empty apartment. Die. You can't do that to a cat. Since what can a cat do in an empty apartment? Climb the walls? Rub up against the furniture? Nothing seems different here, but nothing is the same. Nothing has been moved, but there's more space. And at nighttime, no lamps are lit. Footsteps on the staircase, but they're new ones. The hand that puts fish on the saucer has changed, too. Something doesn't start at its usual time. Something doesn't happen as it should. Someone was always, always here, then suddenly disappeared, and stubbornly stays disappeared. Every closet has been examined. Every shelf has been explored. Excavations under the carpet turned up nothing. A commandment was even broken. Papers scattered everywhere. What remains to be done? Just sleep and wait. Just wait till he turns up. Just let him show his face. Will he ever get a lesson on what not to do to a cat? Sidle toward him, as if unwilling and ever so slow on visibly offended paws, and no leaps or squeals at least to start. We don't have to spend tons of time on this poem. Again, she's highlighting the importance of new perspectives. No, it's not enough to just say, oh, this person died in, alone in their apartment and left this cat. That would be kind of melodramatic or sentimental. We should talk about sentimentality. Poetry so easily becomes sentimental. What is sentimentality for you? And why is it bad? 
I just think it's interesting that there are so many sentimental poems because sentimental things are sentimental because we all feel them and because they're real to all of us, right? Interesting that because things are real to us, they become old to hear about again and again because we're so familiar with them. And yet those emotions are poignant to us. And so I felt like Zimborska did a wonderful job in this poem of of showing, you know, like a cat would feel something and maybe maybe a cat doesn't feel the same way as we do as a human. And she didn't personify the cat as a human, but mm. she showed what a cat would notice, you know, that their ha- the habits change, right? That the person has gone in. Especially, I liked, like, as a cat, you know, cats are less attached to people than dogs are. And so a dog might miss mm. their master, but a cat doesn't miss the person as much as they don't understand why things are different. Yeah, she doesn't turn the cat into a human. She notices this absence in the way that a cat would. The hand that puts the fish on the saucer has changed. Footsteps on the staircase, but they're new ones. So you have to kind of, to be a great poet, I think one thing that you need to practice is turning the volume up on your imagination. You know, really sit there for a while and think, ask yourself, what would a cat notice? What would a cat notice? And that might take some mental effort. Emotions in poetry are very important and profound and deep emotions, common emotions like love and grief and pain and hope, very important to encapsulate in a poem because they're something that makes, there's something that appeals to all of humanity, something that we all feel and they matter. They really matter. A sentimental poem is a poem in which I think a poem that tries to evoke these emotions, but fails because it does so in a way that feels cheap or too easy or too cliche or unearned somehow. Like the poem says, oh, you should feel, I am sad, I am sad. I'm People can't, people listening can't see, but I'm moving my (laughs) hand like a puppet. The poem says, oh, I am sad. Isn't this sad? But the poem does nothing to evoke in the reader the sense of sadness. So maybe one definition of a sentimental poem is a poem that talks the talk of an emotion, but doesn't actually walk the walk, doesn't evoke it. You feel nothing as a reader when you read it, yeah? Yeah, so I guess what the two of you have been saying about sentimentality is like, it reminds me of those ridiculous Facebook posts where people just share way too much about their lives, trying to like make people feel sorry for them. Okay, yeah, good. They're trying to get people to like comment and like their posts you can't trust men or like you can't trust women because they're always going to hurt you. Yeah, you know? that's a good example. Like, that's something you share with your diary. And like, yeah, we've all been through horrible relationships and why should we pity you more than anyone else? Very good. But this specific poem, it's vague and specific enough at the same time. I think of like my own cat, like she lives in an apartment and I just love the details. Like it says, someone was always, always here, then suddenly disappeared and stubbornly stays disappeared. Like I can imagine my cat thinking like that. Like yeah. she doesn't know my name, but I know her name and she knows her name. Mm. <laughs> and she knows that like one of us is always going to be here to like feed her. That's, that's all she'll really notice. And I think that's amazing. I want to do a little bit more highlighting. Um, yeah, those Facebook posts are the worst, aren't they? I wish I was above this response. I should be above such a response, but don't they often evoke the exact opposite response that they're meant to evoke? People who make these posts, are they want your sympathy and compassion, 
But in me, because I'm petty, you know, and <laughs> immature, they evoke the opposite. They evoke a kind of disgust or revulsion or spite. You know, I don't care. Yeah. You know, that's what that's the emotion totally. that they evoke. Same. So because they because the, the their authors, the people writing them, are trying too hard. I mean, there are many reasons maybe why they evoke these emotions, but one reason they're trying too hard, they're they're telling and not showing. If the authors recreated a scene, gave you the sense, the sights, the textures, the smells, and you'd be like, oh, I've felt that. Yeah. I have been in very similar situations. And oh yeah, all those all of those feelings are coming back to me. Oh, that's how you feel. And suddenly we would be not talked at, but we would be sharing an, an experience. So a sentimental poem is a poem that talks at you and doesn't recreate an experience. Another great thing you said, Torin, was it's a little bit, this poem is a little bit abstract. It's slightly vague in places. It slightly contradicts a point we've been making since we started this chat, which is that, you know, the more specific, the better. How does a poet get away with lines like, something doesn't start at its usual time? Something doesn't happen as it should. You heard me railing in that first class about be specific, concrete language, sensory detail, sensory detail. Why is Zimborska choosing to write these lines, these sentences that are conspicuously devoid of any sensory detail? So I guess my question might be twofold. Why is she choosing to do this? What effect does it have on you, the reader? Threefold. How do we earn such moments? I think that there are enough specific details that we all know about cats. It's specific enough and it's general enough that everyone can understand cats are fed usually at the same time, like every day, you know, like you take out their litter, like the same time every week, you know? And so they'll notice things like their schedule. And I think saying something that simple, I think you could say that about like several different things. And it's just, it matters so much because of the voice. Like if it were anything else, it would be like, like this doesn't make sense and it's stupid and I'm confused, but because you know, the voice, you know, you know enough about cats in general that it makes sense. Some abstractions could be justified or even more than justified. Wonderful, depending on lots of things that, that we need to determine on a kind of poem by poem basis. And another poem that isn't about a cat, maybe this wouldn't be the right move. So there's no list of absolutes or rules. You could, We should never say, listen to me contradicting myself in one sentence, we should never say you should never do this in a poem. But I think that's true. We should never say you always must do this in a poem. There's rules of thumb. There's things that are more risky and less risky. It's it's such a case-by-case kind of thing. One thought I'm trying to kind of dictate in my mind, I guess, is that maybe the rule then for, like, whether can I do this, can I not do this, in a poem is it's almost about having, like, a social... what is the word like an understanding of the social context of the tone of what you're writing very good in a way like you know like you're at a dinner party how do you behave well it depends like what kind of dinner are you at like where are you who are you with how you dress all these things matter and there's no way to tell someone you should always dress like this and you should always say these things at a dinner party and so it's important for us to get into the mindset of the the tone, who are we writing to, what are we trying to express, what topic are we working with? Yes. And then we can know like, oh, here's the feel for for what is right and what is not working here. Excellent. This is something I hope we'll keep returning to as the semester unfolds, but 
again, I don't want it to make it sound like this is an absolute and you always must do this, but it's a good idea when you start a poem to make sure that the expectations or the contract between you and the reader is clarified, is made as clear as possible. For example, that Hitler poem. The first line of this poem called Hitler's First Photograph is this, and who's this little fellow in his itty-bitty robe? Immediately, what Zimborska is doing in that line is announcing, dear reader, you are about to enter this kind of poem. It's a poem that will be lighthearted about a very serious thing. I'll be using this tone and this voice. That's the contract that we set up. So I promise to stay within the bounds of that contract. I promise not to get too didactic or grotesque or melodramatic. You know what I mean? So a poem can sometimes fail because its first few stanzas set up expectations or patterns that the poem ends up defying. And readers don't like that. Uh, Brooklyn, do you want to take us to another poem? I would love to. Let's go to one version of events, page 254 in the poems book. One version of events. Uh, In map, it's page 312. If we'd been allowed to choose, we probably would have gone on forever. The bodies that were offered didn't fit and wore out horribly. The ways of sating hunger made us sick. We were repelled by blind heredity and the tyranny of glands. The world that was meant to embrace us decayed without end, and the effects of causes raged over it. Individual fates were presented for our inspection. Appalled and grieved, we rejected most of them. Questions naturally arose. Example, who needs the painful birth of a dead child, and what's in for it for a sailor who will never reach the shore? We agreed to death, but not to every kind. Love attracted us, of course, but only love that keeps its word. Both fickle standards and the impermanence of artworks kept us wary of the muse's service. Each of us wished to have a homeland free of neighbors and to live his entire life in the intervals between wars. No one wished to seize power or be subject to it. No one wanted to fall victim to his own or others' delusions. No one volunteered for crowd scenes and processions to say nothing of dying tribes, although without these, history couldn't run its charted course through centuries to come. Meanwhile, a fair number of stars lit earlier had died out and gone cold. It was high time for a decision. Voicing numerous reservations, candidates finally emerged for a number of roles as healers and explorers, a few obscure philosophers, one or two nameless gardeners, artists and virtuosos, though even these livings couldn't all be filled for lack of other kind of applications. It was time to think the whole thing over. We'd been offered a trip from which we'd surely be returning soon, wouldn't we? A trip outside eternity, monotonous no matter what they say, and foreign to time's flow. The chance may never come our way again. We were besieged by doubts. Does knowing everything beforehand really mean knowing everything? Is a decision made in advance really any kind of choice? Wouldn't we be better off dropping the subject and making our minds up once we get there? We looked at Earth. Some daredevils were already living there. A feeble weed clung to a rock, trusting blindly that the wind wouldn't tear it off. A small animal dug itself from its burrow with an energy and hope that puzzled us. We struck ourselves as prudent, petty, and ridiculous. In any case, our ranks began to dwindle. The most impatient of us disappeared. They left for the first trial by fire. This much was clear. 
especially by the glare of the real fire they'd just begun to light on the steep bank of an actual river. A few of them have actually turned back, but not in our direction, and with something they seem to have won in their hands. Wow, what a poem. Praise it, Brooklyn. Why is this so great? This poem, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, this poem is about the premortal life, right? It's about it's about people who are standing in heaven and God says, hey, do you want to go to earth? And we mm-hmm. say, uh, I don't know. And some some people were more eager than others. Some people were like, yeah, okay, fine. Let's just do it. And yeah. Others were like, I don't know. That rock there is hanging on that moss like it's going to fall off. And how can I survive there if a rock can't? I love a lot of the beautiful ideas in this poem, right? Like, if we know everything before we go, does it mean we know everything, right? We Mm. might know everything about what we think we're getting into, but we Mm -hmm. don't know really what it's going to be like. Yeah, it's just interesting, you know, kind of this perspective of these people in heaven who are looking down, they're seeing like others start to experience life and they're seeing like, oh, look, they just lit a fire on the bank of an actual river. And they're Mm. wondering, what does that feel like to light fire and what, like an actual river? Like, what does water feel like? And what is it cold? Is it unpleasant? Would I want to be there? Should I be afraid of the fire? Should I be afraid of the water? Should I love it? And then the last stanza, you see a few have turned back. And I'm not sure if that's supposed to mean like people who said, no, I don't want to go to earth. Or if it was people who died and who were done with that direction. I'm guessing it's the first. But it's interesting to look at it and think like, okay, you've got a choice. Are you going or are you not? And at one point they say, is this even a choice? Is a decision made in advance really any kind of choice? And I love that question because, you know, it brings in what do you know and what do you not know? And if you don't know everything, how can you really make a decision? But you're never going to know how things will play out before you make a decision. Mm -hmm. So interesting. It's such an ambitious poem. It's great that we follow this that th- this came after Cat in an Empty Apartment. You could make, I mean, I love Cat in an Empty Apartment. It's one of my favorites of hers, but it is quite microscopic. You know, it's a small domestic scene about one individual person and one individual animal. This poem, oh my gosh, it's so ambitious and so cosmic. Let's write a poem about, literally, about every single human. And let's speak in the voice of this universal we. I mean, it's so gutsy and so brave but I think she's teaching us something about poetry. Poetry, great poems, lasting poems are about all humans. Even if they're not using this uh, plural pronoun, we, even if they're using the pronoun I, they're still about all humans. Here she's just going for it, just face on, you know? We did this, we did this, speaking on behalf of all humans. Poets have this annoying reputation of being pompous and arrogant, probably well-deserved, but (laughs) lasting poems speak for humanity. And this poem certainly does. I love the ending. I read the ending as a kind of death. Yeah, a few of them have actually turned back, but not in our direction. So they left the earth, but they didn't come back here. They went somewhere else. And with something they seemed to have won in their hands, like another wonderful use of ambiguity. They've left this life and they seem to have won something. It's given them something, but isn't that word something the best possible word choice? What, what exactly has life given them? It's hard to say. 
Especially like, since it's only a few of them got it, you know? Yeah. It just makes you wonder what she's saying about differences in people. What life can offer you isn't maybe, maybe it's not nameable. How great is the opening too? Like the bodies that were offered didn't fit and wore out horribly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's so great. What a great poem. So we're adding to our list, be ambitious, speak for humanity, be ambiguous, but strategically and carefully. Okay, uh, we should move on. Torin, where should we go next? I wanted to read Love at First Sight in um, the book that we have. It's on page 244. Got it. In, in map, it's 302. Okay. okay, take it away, Torin. Okay, Love at First Sight. They're both convinced that a sudden passion joined them. Such certainty is beautiful, but uncertainty is more beautiful still. Since they had never met before, they're sure that there had been nothing between them. But what's the word from the streets, staircases, hallways? Perhaps they've passed by each other a million times. I want to ask them if they don't remember. A moment face to face in some revolving door. Perhaps a sorry muttered in a crowd. A curt wrong number caught in the receiver. But I know the answer. No, they don't remember. They'd be amazed to hear that chance has been toying with them. Now for years. Not quite ready yet to become their destiny. It pushed them close, drove them apart. It barred their path, stifling a laugh and then leaped aside. There were signs and signals, even if they couldn't read them yet. Perhaps three years ago, or just last Tuesday, a certain leaf fluttered from one shoulder to another. Something was dropped and then picked up. Who knows, maybe the ball that vanished into childhood's thicket. There were doorknobs and doorbells where one touch had covered another beforehand. Suitcases checked and standing side by side. One night, perhaps, same dream, grown hazy by morning. Every beginning is only a sequel after all. And the book of events is only, is always open halfway through. Mm, wow, it's so good. I just love it because I feel like a lot of people take it upon themselves to question love at first sight. And rather than that, she just, she just expands on it. She's like, you know, maybe there's just, maybe there's more to it. Like maybe there's fate. Like maybe there are secret hands at work that like make it happen. She doesn't doubt like the magic of it and the beauty of like love at first sight. The line where um, it says one night, perhaps the same dream grown hazy by morning. Like what, what a beautiful thought, like two people having the same dream and somehow that connects them. And then they're able to find one another because of that. And then like, I just think it's an absolutely beautiful poem and it looks at love in a completely different way where I don't feel like it's, you know, nothing against Shakespeare, but just like comparing someone to a summer's day, just, you know, rather than just comparing someone to things that they like, I feel like this is so much deeper than that. It's just, mm-hmm. it, I feel like it explains what it feels like to be in love, that it feels cosmic, mm-hmm. that it feels like you're swept away, that it feels like the universe, like pushed you together. And, you know, maybe it feels like you fell in love with each other when you first met. But like what she's saying is maybe there's just, maybe not God, maybe not fate, but maybe something. And I think that's incredible. Maybe it was just a certain leaf last Tuesday fluttered. You know, maybe that's it. it was like yeah. Maybe it's just a small collection of s- random, very minute events pushing us together. What a great comment. She begins the poem with an idea. They're both convinced that a sudden passion joined them. Such certainty is beautiful. That's a thought. Yeah, that's a beautiful. So th- I think I talked about this in the last podcast. Like, it's beautiful to believe that this sudden passion joined them. It's like, but how can I counter this thought or how can I push this thought further? How, how can I think about this more deeply? That's what you were saying, Torn. Can I think about this more deeply? 
But uncertainty is more beautiful still. What if this? What if that? What if this? So yeah, you did a great job describing it. I, I won't try to paraphrase what you just said. It, it, it wonderfully preserves the mystery of love while trying to explain it. The same leaf that blew onto her shoulder blew onto his shoulder yeah. later. You know, like things that they have no idea about, you know. It, it reminded me of, you know, when I was single and I'm married now, but I remember that I would go to a new class at the beginning of the semester and I'd think, oh, like, am I going to meet my husband in this class? Right. Am I going to meet my husband when I go to this club and I'm going to meet mm-hmm. him when I go hang out with these friends? You know what I mean? Like, it could be anywhere. It could be anytime. I could walk past him on the street. It could be like the cashier at the mm-hmm. grocery store. And it just, it was this wonderful uncertainty and Mm. possibility of like it could be anywhere anytime and we could be right by each other we could walk past each other and almost the horror of of possibly missing that Mm -hmm. opportunity to meet them if you were past them and yet this poem it expresses that so well and also shows it's okay like fate has it in control you know Mm. it has the moment ready really interesting and and beautiful the way that she expresses that. Excellent. We have um, just enough time to finish with, I'm squeaking in another poem. People are going to be slightly annoyed, but I love this poem, Possibilities. Okay, page 214. In map, it's 272. I'll just read it. We don't have to spend a lot of time. We're running out of time anyway. And then I'll ask you guys for some, after I read this, I'll just ask you if you have anything that you've learned about how to write poetry from Zimborska that you haven't said yet that you would like to say. I prefer movies. I prefer cats. I prefer the oaks along the Varta. I prefer Dickens to Dostoevsky. I prefer myself liking people to myself loving mankind. I prefer keeping a needle and thread on hand just in case. I prefer the color green. I prefer not to maintain that reason is to blame for everything. I prefer exceptions. I prefer to leave early. I prefer talking to doctors about something else. I prefer the old fine-lined illustrations. I prefer the absurdity of writing poems to the absurdity of not writing poems. I prefer where love's concerned non-specific anniversaries that can be celebrated every day. I prefer moralists who promise me nothing. I prefer cunning kindness to the over-trustful kind. Sorry, I prefer the earth in civvies. I prefer conquered to conquering countries. I prefer having some reservations. I prefer the hell of chaos to the hell of order. I prefer the Grimm's fairy tales to the newspaper's front pages. I prefer leaves without flowers to flowers without leaves. I prefer dogs with uncropped tails. I prefer light eyes since mine are dark. I prefer desk drawers. I prefer many things that I haven't mentioned here to many things I've also left unsaid. I prefer zeros on the loose to those lined up behind a cipher. I prefer the time of insects to the time of stars. I prefer to knock on wood. I prefer not to ask how much longer and when. I prefer keeping in mind even the possibility that existence has its own reason for being. I mean, how great is this? You know, first of all, the repetition of I prefer, she opens up suddenly all these new ways to write a poem. You can just make a list. A list can be a poem. You know, if you make the ingredients of that list surprising and beautiful. Look at how plain some of these are. I prefer desk drawers. Wow, you know, that's a line in a poem. It's so great. But it's great because it tells us so much about who this person is. It's so illuminating her personality. Okay. How would you, yeah. Any concluding thoughts about how you have been, how you think your poetry has been changed or affected by reading her, what you've learned, what you, 
what you hope to be able to accomplish going forward? I know this is kind of confusing, but bear with me. I feel like I've learned that poetry is much more simple and much more complex. That's great. You know, I feel like the real pressure is learning how to write complex things in simple terms Mm -hmm. so that, um, so that, you know, you can, you can think deeply about it, you know, or not, or you could just enjoy like the beauty of the simplicity of it. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to have like beautiful words and imagery that you don't hear like in day-to-day language, like you certainly can, Mm -hmm. but I think it's important to make it readable rather than just a bunch of really complicated words grouped together. Excellent. That's what I learned. This is so great. I wish as a poetry teacher that I could give you the recipe. I wish I could say, here's what you need to do. Follow these 12 steps and you'll write a great poem, but there is no such recipe. It's really hard to write a poem. It's mysterious. I don't know how these things get written. I don't know how to do it. You know, I have done it from time to time, but it's just trial and error and I get lucky. I know some rules of thumb, but that's all they are, rules of thumb. Zimborska, I love this this equation, Torin. She makes it she reveals to us that it's much more simple than we thought, but also still mysterious and complicated. That's great. I, after reading this book, I'm really excited about the idea that I can write a poem about anything at Mm -hmm. all. And she does such a good job of showing that anything can be interesting. Like anything can be looked at differently. Anything can be worth writing about and worth reading and and be insightful to someone. And I love that. Love that so, so much. Yeah. I prefer desk drawers. You know, that's why I have this weird list in the class about suggested topics and they're not metaphors. I don't mean like write a poem that uses desk drawers as a metaphor for love. No, just like let's celebrate desk drawers. You know what I mean? They're kind of amazing little things. Very good. Very good comments. Thank you both for a great chat. Bye guys. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. This has been fun. Now it's time for the writing prompt. The purpose of this prompt is to help you avoid sentimentality in poetry and to increase the amount of surprises that you're offering your readers by helping you learn how to fight against emotions. We heard about this from Zimborska herself at the beginning of this recording. We also chatted a little bit about this in the conversation with Torin in Brooklyn. There are many ways to fight against emotions and to prevent sentimentality in a poem. I think one of Zimborska's most common and successful methods of doing this is to pick a highly emotional subject and then try to write about it from a perspective that strips it of its emotion or that shows it from a direction that isn't so subject to intense human emotion. I think a very good example of this is the poem Cat in an Empty Apartment, which you heard read in that conversation. Somebody dying alone in an apartment and leaving their cat kind of trapped is already emotional. It's already fraught, right? You don't have to explain why that's sad. So the emotion will already be there. You don't have to work hard to expose it. In fact, it will be so strong that you have to work against it. You have to dampen it or restrain it or add a counterbalance or an alternate spice or a surprising angle. To just simply say, oh, isn't it sad that somebody died alone in their apartment would be like a cake whose only ingredient was sugar. You know, some sugar is good, but you have to add things that dilute or dampen the sugar so that the poem or the cake is actually palatable. So to accomplish this, Zimborska tells this story from the vantage point of the pet that's left behind. 
searching every closet, every hallway, telling the story not from a human perspective, but from a totally different perspective. A different perspective, but one that is also, of course, quite, fr- quite familiar, one in which we recognize ourselves. So this is what I want you to do. Pick a strong emotion or a scene or event that is highly emotional and begin to draft a poem not from your perspective on this scene or event, but from the perspective of some non-human spectator. Could be an animate object in the scene, could be an inanimate object in the scene. Describe this highly emotional scene in a way that strips it of its human subjectivity, its human lens, its human emotional baggage, and get a little bit of distance from it. Fight against the emotion. Remember, the emotion is important, but it will be there. It's your job to back up from it a little bit and to give readers something in addition to this emotion. So do a quick free write, see where it takes you, embrace however this surprises you. And I think it's an experiment that will really pay off. The poem of the day is a kind of example of what can happen when you fight against emotion. It's also a great example of what you can do in poetry when you embrace the mundane and just write about objects as objects, not as metaphors for other things. We talked a little bit about this in our first meeting. It's a poem by Charles Simic, and it's called Fork. Notice how all the poem does is use metaphors to show us a fork in a new way to make us really see it again. Fork. This strange thing must have crept right out of hell. It resembles a bird's foot worn around the cannibal's neck. As you hold it in your hand, as you stab with it into a piece of meat, it is possible to imagine the rest of the bird, its head, which, like your fist, is large, bald, beakless, and blind. Okay, that's it for this time. The next recording will be about Claire Walmanholm's book of poems called Red Mouth, which I'm really excited about. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>